Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. So this is January 14th. This is Lesson 2 for the uh, book of Job, and I'm uh, Dan Truett. So let's turn to Job uh, chapter 1. And uh, by the way, when the little page came back for the email addresses, uh, this pen came with it. So anybody just... It's, it's, not it's purple. No, it's purple, but it's not I mine. I think it's your mother. Maybe it's your mother's. I don't think so. Okay, I'll ask yeah, it then. Charlene. <clears throat> Charlene? Oh, okay, maybe so. She's helping Dis- Dixie today. I'll check with that. Okay, well, let's pray and get started. Our Father, now we come uh, before you. We thank you for caring for us today. Uh, we thank you for the for the demonstration of your power through the cold and yet you've been merciful and kind to us with heat and clothing and food and all these uh, temporal blessings we thank you for them but most of all we pray you would direct our hearts to be grateful to you for your great love and salvation that you've given us through our Lord Jesus Christ and we pray that you would that you would portray him before us wonderfully today that, that we would renew our hope in him and find our joy uh, in your salvation we thank you for the study of your word today and we ask for the ministry of your spirit to us and each one in the room and we love you and we thank you and we entrust our this hour to you in jesus name amen amen well i think when we finished up last week i said this week we're going to do more introductory kind of stuff uh, and Job, uh, like the theology of Job, the questions posed and answered by Job, the lessons taught, uh, what's the message of Job. But as I continue to read over that, there, of course there's books written on this, those introductory ideas. Uh, it became it became more clear to me that the way to grasp those things is not to have somebody else tell you what they are, but to go through the journey, the whole the, the, the process of studying the book of Job. So these things will come out as we go along, and some will come out even today. But that's my uh, that's my plan. So we were going to do some the Odyssey stuff, but we're not doing the Odyssey in, in itself. Uh, maybe you looked it up. It means the justification of God or the righteousness of God, justifying God for what he does, particularly with evil and suffering. And you can see that is obviously a, a key component in the book of Job, but we'll just see how that uh, develops along the way. So, uh, just a, but a couple of little introductory things that may be of help to you. I, I didn't include... Uh, these introductory items from, that I had on the, the page last week, but I'm just going to draw from those for just a few minutes. Um, so Job, is a, he's a real man. He probably was not an Israelite. He's, it says here he's from the land of Uz, which seems most uh, scholars think that's equated to Edom, or in Edom, which is just east of the promised land. 
Uh, so when was what's the setting of the story? <clears throat> well, some interesting <clears throat> excuse me, some interesting interesting clues in the story about Job. There are similarities between him and the patriarchs like Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, those those men. Just a few things. Uh, he offered sacrifices for his for his uh, children, for his family, which means a couple of things. Um, Abraham offered sacrifices, and and uh, so did Isaac and Jacob. So this is we know this is before the priesthood was established, or he wouldn't have been doing that. That would have been wrong for him to to do that. His wealth was measured not in gold and silver, but in the abundance of the animals he owned, and that was what was known back in the patriarchal period. The patriarchs, uh, 2000 B.C. to 1700 B.C. The, the thing I always remember as a kind of a benchmark for me when I think that far back, David was about 1000, 1080, around in there, so this is thousand years ahead of, uh, of King David. Interestingly, uh, he lived to be at least 140 years old. We don't know how old, but he lived 140 years, I think, at the end of the book, we'll see that, 140 years after this uh, experience. Um, Abraham lived to be 175 years old, so they had probably similar, similar ages. Um, it really gets interesting because he did believe in the, in the God of Israel. He used names of God that were used other places like Elohim and El Shaddai, but Yahweh is, of course, the, the personal name of God for Israel, the covenant name. Um, interesting to think about where did he get that? You know, where did he get this information? Um, it's kind of interesting, like a, a Melchizedek. Remember Melchizedek, the priest? He just shows up for three or four verses and then goes away, but he was a priest of the of the one true God. Um, let's see, there's no... So the conclusion is that Job lived during the patriarchal period between 2000 B.C. and 1700 B.C. There's no claim of authorship in the, in the book. Some, some scholars think maybe Moses might have been, might have been an author. Uh, Solomon, because it's during the Solomonic period. If it was during the Solomonic period, that's a thousand years later, so um, obviously there was either some documents written or a whole lot of uh, oral tradition that was passed down, we don't know. Something that's really interesting that I think may come up later, and that is the, uh, uh, the affinities between Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, and the book of Job. Okay, one scholar said, it's almost as if Isaiah was meditating on the book of Job particularly when he came to those suffering servant poems, well, from 40 to 50, 53, of course, is kind of the climax of those poems, the suffering servant, because Job was, is presented here as an innocent, righteous man that's suffering. And of course, uh, Isaiah, in his prophecy, he brings that out, particularly in Isaiah 53, here's an innocent, righteous man that's suffering, obviously at a different level, because he's talking about the Messiah, but that's an interesting thing. Um, and then there is an interesting verse. I think we'll see it in a few minutes. In Ezekiel 14, uh, Job is mentioned. I don't think he's mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament. He is mentioned once, I think, in the New Testament. Remember who mentions him in the New Testament? 
James does. And it's a good report, and he was a good guy. And well, it speaks of the patience of Job or perseverance or something. Anyway, he's mentioned in uh, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 14. So that means we know the story, apparently we, we would have confidence this, this, that this, that the story of Job was extant, was, was available before 600 BC. So it's still an old story whenever it, whenever it was written down. But the setting definitely seems to be um, seems to be during the during the patriarchal period. So you put him back there with Abraham and, and those guys. So okay, so let's look now at um, at the uh, prologue. And we're gonna we're not gonna get through the whole chapter today, but we'll get uh, get started on it. So the prologue, of course, is chapters one and two. And I thought I might just read a little bit from a, one of the Bible scholars I've been reading named uh, John Hartley. He writes a technical commentary. Uh, so just, I'm going to read five or six sentences. The prologue consists of six scenes. In the first scene, Job is characterized as a, as a great man who worshiped God with pure devotion. The next four scenes alternate between, between heaven and earth. So we got this. We're going to talk about this. This unusual uh, council of the holy ones in heaven. For the, by the way, uh, this author, whoever he was, he had access to see what was going on in heaven. Kind of like, let's well, see, Isaiah saw that, didn't he? I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw the throne of God. Who else had access to the heavenly courts? John. Yeah, John in the book. Was that you, John? Okay. You like that, I guess. Huh? <laughs> okay, not good. Good. All right. Anyway, so he was, you know, he was a prophetic kind of guy. He was he could see things going on that, that nobody else could see at that in the story at least. So the the next four scenes alternate between heaven and back to earth when Job gets the he gets the brunt of what happened in the heavenly councils and then back to the heavenly councils again, then back to earth. And then finally, uh, the, the uh, introduction of his three so-called uh, friends. Hartley calls this an a, uh, epic account. And just listen to some of the things he's, he says. Um, it's composed in the beautiful, simple, compact style typical of early Hebrew prose. The very short scenes are set with a few bold strokes Narratives and, spe and speeches are, are minimum. Um, the number of characters in each scene is usually limited to two. Action is swift and definitive. Dialogue between the characters is direct and terse. The stark simplicity of the narrative contrasts with the depth of the problem being addressed. Consequently, the account, though simple, captures the audience's imagination. And boy, it doesn't do that. It captures our imagination. It has a remarkable fascination that has transcended ages and cultures. So let's uh, let's get into it and, and look at it here. I'm just going to read. Uh, I think the first uh, first uh, three verses. Speaking of Job's uh, faith and his prosperity, Job uh, one. But well, we can read one through five. So Job 1, 1, 
there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that uh, this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. So I think we'll stop, uh, stop there. So, um, so notice, notice that the writer begins with this, with this character, which probably says to us that, that this is a very important feature in the story because he headlines, he headlines the story uh, with this. Back up a little bit to you so I'm not right in your face. Okay. So, um, so this is of vital importance to the story to get this to get this established uh, at the beginning because uh, it comes up regularly. Job, Job even defends himself with this kind of uh, kind of character. His friends say, "There's no way you're like this," but but uh, but the writer here establishes uh, his character, and interestingly, it is exactly the same. Um, way that God describes Job's character. See, so look over in, uh, in, in uh, verse 8 of chapter 1. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And in the second scene in heaven, God does the same thing. So um, we don't want to take lightly what's being said here about Job. That's a, a very important piece of the, of the story as it, uh, as it develops. Well, um, one author pointed out that there are, these are two pairs of character qualities. By the way, uh, I don't have any original thoughts. I don't. I mean, I try to come up with one every now and then in this too stupid dimension. So I'm like, I just read other, what other people say and tell you. And it, if you think I look real smart for that, I'm not. I'm just to read this book, and you know you can do the same thing. By the way, I do want you to. I want to continue to to. Um, only, I only read three or four chapters of this book, uh, Joe by Christopher Ash, but it's really available. It's a Crossway book. I think I mentioned you can join the Crossway whatever club. And then there's no strings attached, and you can save thirty percent on any of their books. So that makes this book still thirty dollars, twenty dollars. I think it's a good, uh, uh, a good investment if you want to do some more reading. And reading with me, I'm going to access other books. But then you'll see. Oh, Dan didn't come up with that. He read Christopher Ash, but I try to give you the. the uh, the footnotes to be, have some integrity there. Okay, so uh, he was blameless and upright. That just means uh, he wasn't sinlessly perfect, uh, but he was he was uh, he was authentic. He was not a hypocrite. Uh, what you see with Job is what you uh, what you get. He had personal integrity and not not sinless perfection. Um, Interestingly, uh, chapter 31 is a very interesting chapter. 
you want to look ahead sometime, it talks about uh, how Job treated others. He gives a testimony how he treated his servants and the homeless, uh, the fatherless and the poor. And even in there he says, he says, I'm not trying to hide my iniquity in my heart. I'm, you know, I'm open to talk about it. So he, he admits that he's not sinlessly perfect, but he does have personal integrity. He treats others with fairness uh, and integrity. That there's that chapter about 31. The poor, the orphan, the needy, uh, the sojourner. Uh, he, he recounts that. And then he had a, a devout faith in God. He feared God and turned away uh, from evil. So Job's presented as an authentic believer in Yahweh um, in a really wonderful way. Again, I don't, I don't know uh, where he got his information. He got it from Israel, from somebody in Israel. Somebody's doing their job. That was their, one of their jobs was to be an evangelist to the world. And somebody got to him like to Melchizedek, remember Rahab, uh, the prostitute? She knew about the one true, she'd heard about the one, uh, the one true God. But notice that, um, that here, even though we're gonna see God's name is referred to in other names, he's using the, the, the name of Yahweh, that's the personal covenant keeping God of Israel. So, so he is an authentic, genuine believer in the God, the God of Israel. Um, and because he had the fear of God, we know from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and therefore what kind of person was he? He was a wise, he's a wise man. He feared God, which of course is the beginning, uh, beginning of wisdom. Um, his turning away from evil implies repentance. Um, we're going to see that in this unusual. Um, sacrificial annual service that he had for his children that uh, that turning away from evil has that implication doesn't it? he realizes there's a temptation where he only turns away from it or maybe has sin and he turns away uh, in repentance um, now look at Ezekiel Ezekiel 14 I just want you to see this it's just really unusual I think we just turn over there just for a minute so you will see it in Ezekiel 14, uh, beginning in verse the verse 12, beginning in verse 12, this is God saying Jerusalem is in trouble uh, because of its sin, and I'm not going to spare, uh, I'm not going to spare the, the land. And then in verse 14, Ezekiel 14, 14, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver their own lives by their righteousness, uh, declares the Lord. But they would deliver but their own lives. So that's quite a testimony, isn't it? To be named with uh, Noah and Daniel. And here again, God affirms uh, Job's righteousness that he was a righteous man. Okay. Um, now let's look at well, let's see. Um, even though he was a righteous man and he, he, he feared God and turned away from evil, uh, when we get into the story, we're going to see his, his theology gets a little shaky sometimes. 
he uh, and he questions God. He, he's not heretical. He's not blasphemous. But he questions. Uh, he questions God's justice sometimes directly. He says, "I don't understand how this happens, and God doesn't stop it, you know, or take care of this this problem." It, it reminds me of uh, what I read about. Oh, oh, the other thought is, some have said that the book of Job is just one long lament. And you, we've studied a little bit the laments in uh, the book of Psalms. And wow, those guys get really strong in their complaints about their lives and even complaints to God about how it seems that he's acting, which is different from what they thought he was supposed to act. Which, by the way, we don't have a problem um, with evil if we don't have a strong understanding of God's care and sovereignty. But when we, when we read what God says about his care and his love for us and his sovereignty and we see things happen that don't seem to fit, that's what caused the conflict for us. So the lament psalms are, are, um, are a good way to think about some of Job. I thought about uh, Richard Wormbrand. You know Richard Wormbrand? What's the organization that he started? Voice of the Martyrs? Yeah. I, 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 was, I couldn't find the little booklet, but I had a little booklet that he wrote called How to Prepare for Persecution. And he was describing his... Uh, experience and he was a pastor in Romania I think uh, during the communist era and was in prison several times and tortured and and uh, and he said uh, when you're in prison and being tortured I forgot the words he used but he said something like your theology can become a little wonky <laughs> not heretical but just strange and he said but don't judge me for that he said, when you're going through times of stress and trial and torture, uh, your mind and your heart plays, plays, uh, plays tricks on you. And so I don't know what all he meant by that, but, but, uh, but we all do that sometimes, don't we? When, we? when we're suffering, when we're going through a difficult time and it's confusing to us, we begin to maybe wonder about, is this, the uh, misunderstand what, you know, what I knew about God or not? So. Um, not not heretical, but um, not all pretty and neatly tied uh, tied together. So Job's prosperity just quickly. Um, these are all, these are obviously rounded off. Seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels. Interestingly, I think uh, Hartley points out the number sequence of three, seven, and ten. So just look at what he says there. So he had, he has seven sons and three daughters. Uh, ten was considered a well, I think seven was a quiverful. So he had seven sons, which was a you know considered a wonderful thing to have. Um, the the people around around Naomi said, "Oh, this is better than seven sons," as if that was the ultimate uh, blessing from God. Um, but but Job had seven sons plus three daughters. Um, and then looking at the, the animals, 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, that adds up to a, to a factor of 10. 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, that adds up to 1,000 to a yoke to a, to a factor of 10. Anyway, he thought that was important to, uh, to point that out. So he had quite an enterprise going. You think about 5,000 yoke of oxen, excuse me, 500 
yoke of oxen. That's a bunch, isn't it? And he must have had a huge agricultural enterprise. And he had uh, how many camels? Uh, 3,000 camels. So he may have been involved in some kind of, uh, uh, let's see, what was the word? Caravan. Yeah, caravan. Yeah, caravan trade business. So he was a big, big businessman and a leader. In fact, we see here in a minute that he was, um, he was the greatest in the land of the east, which is this area of, around, around Edom there. So he was quite a, quite a guy. He must have had a huge number of administrative workers to run this whole, this whole uh, enterprise. Well, now let's look at, at this interesting story about Job's leadership and care for his family in Job 1, 4, and 5. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And so some, the, the two guys I read about this said probably, or maybe it was on their birthday. When it says their day, maybe they had this feast, this was the, you know, these were not, this doesn't mean that, that his family just had drinking parties all the time. It meant they had these family gatherings seven times a year. Uh, they got together. So it just, I think, speaks of the closeness of his family relations. So they had these, these feasts. Um, and then, uh, but that was of a concern to Job. So verse 5, And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. So the point there is, uh, he said, I'm going to have my, my, uh, my day of sacrifice on this day, and you will be here. So he, he makes sure these, his ten children are there. Uh, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So this was year after year he had this. After the seven, I don't know, there were some interesting ideas about what date he might have done that on on one of the... Well, they didn't have feast days back then because that was before the feast days of Moses. But anyway, he did this every year because he had this concern. And it, notice, it, we begin to see some of Job's piety here. It wasn't just concern about their outward behavior. It was concerned about their heart. And so... Um, and he's aware of the sacrificial substitutionary system. And I, maybe system in the right word, provision that God made to deal with our, with our sins and our moral faults. Now one, uh, one, of the reader, one of the writers, I don't remember which one, he said, okay, let's kind of see what happened on that day. So Job got up early and his kids were there. And um, let's see. So he said, uh, Jedediah, come forward. I'm making up names. Okay? I don't know what kind of names he would have. Now, this uh, oxen is for you. And, I, and he sacrificed the oxen. It was a burnt offering. Burnt offerings were not for specific sins, but just general sinfulness of, of, a, of a person. And then he called up, uh, who else? Uh, Micah. <coughs> Micah. Now you come, and I'm going to sacrifice this animal for you. And then uh, Naomi, or one of his daughters, 
So it took all day to do that, perhaps. And the point was to 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 show that um, show his love for his children and his kind of priestly care for his family and his faith in the sacrificial substitutionary system. And wouldn't that get your kids' attention? Um, and that, I'll see these three young men back here. If, if your father had a, well, I don't even know where to go with that, so we're not going there. But, um, but that would get their attention when every year there's their dad sacrificing for them, and it would maybe make their hearts uh, tender toward the Lord. Um, why do you think this is in the story? The, the prologue is real brief and short. Why did the writer include this part about? This, this sacrifice that Job paid once a year. Job being an intercessor. Okay, good. So more about Job's character. Yeah. So how much he cared for his family. I think so too. Um, Otherwise, losing them wouldn't mean as much. Sorry. I think that's a good point. The writer is setting up the grief that's going to happen to Job. How deep it would be. He's done it twice now. Notice he's talked about all of his material goods and treasures. And what a loss that would be. Nay, even greater would be his family. What a loss that that would be for them. I think it really does speak that, as you said, Mike, that that it, he understands what intercession means and, and uh, his faith and understanding of a God who sees and, and receives worship through sacrifice. By the way, um, I say this is hardly cursing God is pivotal in the prologue. Um, in Job 1.11, uh, Satan says, Job will curse you if you take away his stuff. He says the same thing over in uh, chapter 2, verse 5. And then Job's wife, who is only in this, only mentioned one time. I, we kind of wonder about her, but um, there's some interesting things to say about what she said about uh, cursing God. Okay, now let's get to this really interesting interesting uh, part of the story in uh, verses 6 and following so this is the first scene this, so now the, the scene shifts from earth and it goes to heaven and boy does it get weird to us as we read this story uh, one writer I think it was uh, Christopher Ash said now, the, now we begin to deal with a question Job was a great man who was a good man well, he continued to be a good man when he's not a great man. <coughs> and let me read that again. I thought that was good. Job was a great man who was a good man. But, well, he continued to be a good man when he's not a great man. Meaning of all of his greatness with his possessions and authority. So, here we go. Um, <coughs> verse 6. Now, there was a day... By the way, notice verse 1. There was a man in the land of us. Now, there was a day. And notice in verse 13. There was a day. And then chapter 2, verse 1. There was a day. So the author's telling this story. And he's moving it along. It's really short when you look at all that's happening. It's a very short story. But get back to verse 6. Now, there was a day. When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. 
Wow, what is the, what in the world is going on here? Um, it appears from from this um, from this account here that this is evidence of a, of a uh, heavenly council that's gathered around the Lord. Uh, these are spiritual. These are disembodied spiritual. Well, they're not disembodied. They never had bodies. These are angelic creatures. Um, well, let's let's look at a couple of places. You can see I've pointed out to you <coughs> Psalm 82. <coughs> let's go to let's look at Psalm 82. <coughs> so I think what we're going to see here, <coughs> and it, it was it's a new <coughs> a new thought for me, <coughs> that Yahweh. Uh, the sovereign God, <clears throat> that He involves a heavenly host, a council of spiritual beings in His in His uh, governing and ruling the world. Um, <clears throat> by the way, I'll go ahead and tell you, I, I've found this fellow, Michael Heiser. Y'all ever heard the name Michael Heiser? Yeah. He makes a very important point in his book. Do not look at the counsel of God as if God is one of many. God is eternally existent, and these are created beings. They right. are not on the same part with God, even though they're wrong. Right. You don't hear that. This council, they're supernatural beings, but they're created, and they're even called gods. But they're created, and there's no question about it, that God, the one true God, is eternal. And these are creatures, so they, well, He's definitely in charge of this, of this council. So look at, uh, oh, by the way, Michael Heiser, um, I gave you a couple of, uh, of uh, links that I listened, I listened to three hours of him last week, and uh, he really opened your eyes on lots of things. I don't agree with everything that he says. I mean, I don't, he's an expert on this kind of supernatural realm, the invisible realm. I, but sometimes he kind of goes into some other issues that I wouldn't necessarily agree with. So I'm not endorsing everything that he says, but he will open your eyes just looking at the scripture about this idea that there is a kind of a cabinet. God has a cabinet of administrative uh, workers that, that he uses to get, get his work done. Okay, uh, Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So here's the point that, that Christie's making. You see the word God with a capital, that's Elohim. That's the majestic name of God, Elohim. And, but then in the last phrase, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. This is the word Elohim also, same word. So um, an, an Elohim is a spiritual being. Now there's one, but Yahweh is the chief of all Elohims. Now, I understand why you're looking at me that way. I, I looked at Michael Heiser on the television that way too. But, but the point is, these are beings with authority and power that God has empowered. And he's, deci he, he's decided the way he wants to run the world is through these administrative beings. Not all the time, but many times. Um, so they're in this divine 
council in chapter, uh, 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 Psalm 82 is just an interesting psalm. It talks about, wow, it talks about how fast time can go, but it uh, doesn't say that. I just saw the clock. Um, so he's talking to these, to these, uh, uh, these beings, and uh, we don't have time to get into it, but you see verse 6? I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Jesus quotes that verse in John 10. And when, I, when I've understood the way Heiser interprets this, well, that changes the whole way that Jesus is using this verse in John, John 10. We don't have time to go there. Okay, uh, look over at chapter uh, 89. <clears throat> I mean, Psalm 89. And just I just want to read this to you because I want you to see this is in more than one place. Uh, Psalm 89, verse 5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For, so there's the assembly of the holy ones. That's said a little bit different. In, in Job, they were called the sons of God. In, in Psalm 82, they're called gods. Here in Psalm 89, uh, they're called the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. Let's go back to Job and plug this into what we're, what we're seeing here. Um, so here, uh, Job 1, uh, 6, here they're called uh, the sons of God. It's the same group, I think. But notice they're created beings and they have a familial relationship with God. They're, they're spiritual children of God. And that sounds really weird. It almost sounds like uh, Mormonism or something. But, but they're called the sons of God. Uh, they're, they're powerful, uh, superhuman beings. Some are good and some are bad. But they're all under the absolute authority of God. And they only do what he gives them uh, the authority to do. There's an interesting story. I, I've given you the, uh, the uh, <clears throat> reference in 1 Kings 22, 19, and 23. It's almost humorous, but it's about Ahab and Jehoshaphat. They're getting ready to go into battle. Ahab's a northern king. He's wicked. Jehoshaphat was a good king, and he shouldn't have been there, but he was there. And, um, and the, the prophets of Baal said, Go, go Ahab, you're going to win. And... Uh, and Joseph said, you got any other prophets here? And he said, well, I got this Micaiah. I hate him because he always prophesies bad about me. And so Micaiah comes up. He says, yeah, go, go Ahab. You're going to win. And, and Ahab says, I told you. He's not telling the truth. And then Micaiah says this. Well, let me tell you what I saw. I saw in the council of the gods that God said to the council, I want to, I want to, uh, I'm going to take Ahab out in, a bat in this battle. So how are we going to get that done? And it's, it's interesting. One, one of these beings says one thing, one says another, and another one says, uh, I've got an idea. And God says, okay, what, what do you think? He said, I'll go as a lying spirit, and I'll, I will cause the, the uh, prophets of Baal to, uh, to lie, and that will get this done. He'll go into battle, and he'll be killed. And God said, I like that. Let's do that. So what do you do? I mean, I, I embellish the story a little bit, but not too much. It's very interesting. Okay, so now back to back to this. Satan 
was, I would just open this up for discussion, but there's too much we could discuss. So they present, they present themselves before the Lord. So this is his administrative staff, apparently. And they've been, maybe they've gone to do a duty and now they're back to report, or they've, they've reported for a new assignment. And so they're, the, the, the language is quite technical. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So it's a formal kind of a presentation of themselves. And then here was this one, this one being called Satan. And notice it, it feels strange to us, but um, you can see the, the ESV note. There's, a, there's, a, uh, um, there's an article there, so it's the Satan. So it's not, at this point, it's not a, 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 a proper name. It's, a, it's just a role that he plays in this council. Now, as we get toward the New Testament, we find out this is the same guy, the same, the same one that, that takes on the proper name of, of Satan. But he, uh, um, so this, the, but we know the name Satan means adversary, uh, adversary, opponent, or uh, accuser, liar. Uh, sometimes God raised up adversaries like for, against Solomon and against Israel to, to discipline. To discipline them, um, one um, one scholar said, "Well, maybe he was the prosecuting attorney for the head of the council." But Christopher Ash says this, and I think this fits the context really well. He says, "Satan's assignment was to find people on earth who are genuinely godly and pious. That was his job: go to the earth and find find the people that are faithful and." And godly and genuinely, genuinely pious, and you see that makes sense because so. so um, look at the next verse. The Lord said to Satan, "From where have you come?" Kind of like what you've been up to, Satan. And um, and he said, "Oh, just hanging out, you know, roaming back and forth across the kind of like what you ask your teenage son, you know, eleven o'clock Friday night, where you been?" Oh, you know, just out and about. Maybe that's I've read that from somebody. Um, he said, I'm just going, going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down upon it. Well, it sounded like 1 Peter 5. He roams, he roams around seeking whom he may devour. So, um, he's walking up and down. And, and, and so, if, if that's his job, is to find genuinely righteous people, then it makes sense what the Lord asked the question. Have you, in, in your search, have you considered Job? And boy, does God give Job a high mark. He says, have you considered my servant Job? Now, I don't know if you think about that, but boy, that was, there weren't many people in the Old Testament that God called his servant. There was uh, Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, I think. Um, not many, so... So the, the writer is pointing out that when you get into this story, don't forget God's opinion of his servant Job. He called him my, my servant. Um, so then you notice there in verse, in verse 8 that God gives the same, um, the same character account that we saw earlier in the, in the chapter. And so we're going to have to finish here, and I'm sad we you know, didn't move us along better um, 
So Satan challenges God. Interestingly, he's very bold with his imperatives. Notice uh, verse 9, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? And, and the point is, Satan's point is, um, the only reason that Job loves you and worships you and fears you is because you give him stuff and you protect him. That's the only reason. And, and, and in a sense, Job said, and I can prove it. If you take his stuff away, he will do what? Curse He will curse you uh, to his, um, to your face. So that's what's being set up here. But, um, so, Job, so Satan is, Job, is Job's adversary. Whose other adversary is he? He hates Job, but he hates God. And so this is, he just wants to use Job to bring God down to say, God, uh, the only reason people love you is not because of your character and your, that you're worthy of worship. It's because you give them stuff and you take care of them. And I'm going to, if you'll take his stuff away, I'll prove that I'm right. And, um, and the Lord says, okay, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. Of course, that comes later. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord to do this dastardly deed. But just notice as we close here what Christopher Ash says, point C. God assigned Satan as his instrument to take away Job's prosperity to demonstrate to the universe that God is worthy of a man's love and worship and that God's worth is in no way dependent on God's gifts. And I thought this was really insightful. Satan has a God-given ministry of opposition, a ministry insisting that the genuineness of the believer be tested and, and so proved genuine. It is a hostile and malicious ministry, but a necessary ministry for the glory of God. So God's sovereignty is on display here, and he's the one that's orchestrating this, the rest of this story. I thought about, uh, as we close, I thought about uh, Ecclesiastes. I think what I got from Ecclesiastes was uh, what God does is too much for you to get to understand. It's way too complex. He's way too powerful. You don't have access to the heavenly council. So, uh, so live with the sovereignty of God, but enjoy the good things that God provides for you. And Job comes along and says, "What if I lose all of God's gifts? What's left to enjoy?" Let's think about that, and we'll pick it up there uh, next week. If you want to be on the uh, email list, this is that that page there. By the way, did I ask about the pen, didn't I? Uh, Ron, you may want to. I sent the, the, the notes out earlier. Uh, if you want to be, if anybody wants to get on that list, you can be here. If you were already on it from Ecclesiastes, you don't have to get on it again. Okay. Thank you, everybody.